The theme for the talk this evening is uh, what are we doing? And uh, it's perhaps a theme that becomes somewhat familiar with us as we sit in meditation and often on the first day when the, the knees are sore or the, the mind is going all over the place, the question occurs occasionally, what on earth am I doing here? And sometimes it can seem rather like a mantra, repeating itself regularly. What am I doing? And this question, which we might ask in a rather um, exasperated or frustrated way at times sitting on our cushion, is nonetheless a rather important question to be asking ourselves in a very deep and sincere way as part of our spiritual practice, both with regard to being here on retreat and equally with regard to our life. What are we doing? I'd like to read a, a portion from a story which comes from the Native American tradition. Once there was a mouse. She was a busy mouse, searching everywhere, touching her whiskers to the grass and looking. She was busy as all mice are busy with mice things. But once in a while she would hear an odd sound. She would lift her head, squinting hard to see, her whiskers wiggling in the air, and she would wonder. One day she scurried up to a fellow mouse and asked him, Do you hear a roaring in your ears, my brother? No, no, answered the other mouse, not lifting his busy nose from the ground. I hear nothing. I am busy. Talk to me later. She asked another mouse the same question, and the mouse looked at her strangely. Are you foolish in your head? What sound? The mouse asked and slipped into a hole in a fallen tree. The little mouse shrugged her whiskers and busied herself again, determined to forget the whole matter. But there was that roaring again. It was faint very faint, but it was there. One day she decided to investigate the sound just a little. Leaving the other busy mice, she scurried a little way away and listened again. There it was. She was listening hard when suddenly someone said, Hello. Hello, little sister, the voice said, and Mouse almost jumped right out of her skin. She arched her back and tail and was about to run. Hello, again said the voice. It is I, Brother Raccoon. And sure enough, it was. What are you doing here all by yourself, little sister? Asked the raccoon. The mouse blushed and put her nose almost to the ground. I hear a roaring in my ears. And I am investigating it, she answered timidly. A roaring in your ears? replied the raccoon as he sat down with her. What you hear, little sister, is the river. The river? Mouse asked curiously. What is a river? Walk with me and I will show you the river, raccoon said. Little Mouse was terribly afraid, but she was determined to find out for once and for all about the roaring. 
All right, raccoon, my brother, said Mouse. Lead on to the river. I will walk with you. Little Mouse walked with raccoon. Her little heart was pounding in her breast. The raccoon took her upon strange paths and she smelled the scent of many things that had gone by this way. Many times she became so frightened that she almost turned back. Finally, they came to the river. It was huge and breathtaking, breathtaking, deep and clear in some places, murky in others. Little Mouse was unable to see across it because it was so great. It roared, sang, cried and thundered on its way. It is a powerful thing, said Little Mouse, fumbling for words. Yes, it is a great thing, answered the raccoon. In the story of Little Mouse, we perhaps can see some parallels to our situation where we live in a world and in a culture which perhaps it asks us or regularly gives us the message to ignore what we're actually hearing. That we may have heard a whisper in our own ear of something other than that which everyone else is engaged in, than the busy scurrying around with our nose in the dirt, so to speak, pursuing more pleasant experiences, getting and accumulating different things. And we, we may perhaps have asked others whether or not they similarly felt a sense that there was maybe more to life than just this and have heard back from them that that was just stupid ideas or idealism to ign- and been ignored or even rejected for having had the willingness and the courage to even ask such questions. And I think our practice has a very strong parallel to the story and that it really begins with a willingness to trust what we're hearing, to listen to the whispering that we might hear in our ears of a voice of wisdom, the roaring of the river in our ears, to actually not deny what we feel is most appropriate for us to be doing in this moment and to be willing to actually act on that at times asks us to go against a great weight of social conditioning and pressure. And we might see that when we do so, we do actually find others engaged in the same thing. And as a group here together, we, we enter on to a journey, perhaps, to see, is there something more to life than just what we have been led to believe is what it's all about? Just consuming and producing, producing and consuming. Is that all there is to it? If we stop, if we really allow ourselves to come to a halt and question deeply, deeply in our hearts and our being, where is our life leading us? Where are we going? We need to really ask this question. We really need to inquire within, is the way I'm living my life leading to true satisfaction, to deep happiness and well-being? Or does it feel at times and too often superficial, undirected and just going along with what everyone else is doing because there doesn't really seem to be any other option. 
When we come to a place like this, and this may be a retreat center, or it may be a place in our life where we actually say, no, I need to look more deeply. I need to actually listen to those parts of myself which perhaps know that there's more to life than what seems to be on offer in the mass media and seems to be on offer in all the, the images and the ideas of our culture. We, we need to begin by really asking ourselves, where are we right now? What is happening right now? And we, we see when we ask this rather fundamental question that we're here in a body with a mind. We were born without being asked, without asking to be born. And we will come to an end, we will die without choosing to do so. And not even at a time that we can predict. The only thing we can be sure of is that this will come to an end. We don't even know when or how. And in our life, perhaps we've learnt, we've been taught to seek satisfaction, to seek happiness and well-being in the experiences which with, which with we meet, in the world which we find ourselves in, that we're told and perhaps even expected to pursue what we want, to pursue getting the things that we enjoy, the pleasant experiences, and to avoid that which we don't want, avoid that which we find unpleasant. And it's really quite a lovely idea in some ways. We might say, why not? Why not pursue what is enjoyable? Why not spend my life avoiding what I don't like? It would be good if we were actually able to succeed at that. But in fact, our life reveals to us that that's not so. That we're not actually able to control the experiences which we are in contact with. That we can't make our life into a constant unbroken flow of pleasure. We can't avoid pain and suffering and disappointment as part of what we experience. And we need, for, for this to work, for this way of approaching life to work, we would really need to be able to control our outer world. We need to be able to control what goes on within us as well. And we may need to ask ourselves, is this possible? Has this been proved possible so far? That we are born and we die. And in between, we experience pain and loss, sadness, and equally joy and happiness, and rewards at times that come to us, things that touch us and move us. But the amount of the things that come to us, the things such that really nourish us, often they don't seem to stay as long as we would wish. Often they seem to end when we wish them to continue forever. And despite all of that, and despite perhaps spending our lifetime in this way, we still can be so strongly of the view and belief that this is the way to happiness. That if I can only find the way to get all those things that I want, to get away from all of those things that I don't want, if we can only find the way, and it must be there somewhere, because everyone else thinks it's there, everyone else believes it, if we can just do that, then finally our life will be as we want it to be. And yet, we don't actually come to a place of happiness. We don't actually come to a place of satisfaction through accumulating this and avoiding that. If we were to do so, we would have already. 
because there's no doubt we've all spent plenty of time trying. And what we see is that when we experience things that are pleasurable, that are enjoyable, we, we quite naturally start, quite sort of commonly start to relate to them from, the, from a place of wanting, from I want this, I need this, and trying to get this. When we experience things that are unpleasant, we think, oh, I don't want that, I don't like that, I must get rid of it, I must stop it happening again. And we very often come to the view that it's the actual experience that's the problem or the solution. That the pleasant experience, the enjoyable, the affirming experience would be the solution to our problem. And equally, that the, the painful, the unpleasant experience is in fact that which causes the problem in our life. And yet, this really is not the case. This really is not so. That we really need to look at our relationship to that movement of wanting. Wanting this, not wanting that. But it's an incredibly powerful movement, an incredibly strong force. And there's a, a lovely story that the Dalai Lama um, told to a, a friend and fellow teacher of mine. Um, so I'd just like to relate it. He was The Dalai Lama was, um, and perhaps you may know, he's, he's known for his um, fascination with and enjoyment of sort of technological um, things. And he was um, attending a conference in New York where every day he would be driven from, by taxi from his uh, hotel room to the, to the place where the conference was being held. And every day he drove down this street in which there were many, many shops and in their windows were all these amazing electrical appliances and all these incredible pieces of technology. And he said every day as he drove past, he'd look and his eyes would get wider and wider as he contemplated all these things for sale, all these things on offer. He said, day after day this happened. And at the end of the week, he said, I found myself desperately wanting things and I didn't even know what they were. <laughs> and we might just wonder, is that something that perhaps we can find in our own experience? That similar way of which we feel that there's this movement of wanting and it's promising us so much. It's offering us so much if we can just get the thing that we want. And yet, often, we don't even really know what that is. So, we need to really be aware in our life, in our practice, of that arising of that movement of wanting. Because it seems to be so bound up with an offer of happiness. And yet, if we examine it more clearly, more deeply, we may come to see that in fact, that very movement of desire itself is the root of the problem, is the root of the suffering and the pain and so much of the fragmentation and the alienation that we experience in life. That when we, when we realize that Looking at our experience, so often we get the feeling, we have the thought that the thing which we want or don't want is what's really important. And yet that's not actually the case. But more often than not, it's actually to do with our, the movement of wanting itself that is so painful. 
that we're seeking freedom from the actual movement of wanting itself. And yet we don't understand that. We don't see that. And we really need to ask, does this process, this preoccupation and fascination with getting this and avoiding that, does it actually work? Does it actually bring us happiness? And we need to ask it now. Because any promise of the future, any promise that's being held out somewhere in front of us is not something we can trust our life and our well-being to. There are too many empty promises that have been offered to us already to take on this one as well. And we might see that at times socially and in times sort of individually we collude in a, in a sort of deception, in a sort of collective agreement that actually things are just fine and we're really enjoying ourselves and actually we are happy and satisfied. And I remember when I was a, a teenager that um, growing up in a small country town in New Zealand, the main social activity that was on offer was drinking. And if you wished to be recognised as a human being and worthy of having friends, then basically you had to drink. And it struck me at some point after a few years of this, when I was in my teenage, that we spent a lot of time telling ourselves what a great time we had the last time we were doing this and what a great time we were going to have the next time we did this. But actually when we were doing it, I actually realised that I wasn't enjoying it at all. And yet I thought everyone else was. That's why I was pretending to. And then it dawned on me that, well, yeah, but I'm pretending to. Maybe they are actually doing all the same. And when I looked at it through those perhaps different eyes, it became suddenly very clear that we were actually all deluding and deceiving each other. And sometimes that's what we find ourselves part of in the very the very culture of our society, the consumerism, the materialism, where we're actually hearing the message and sometimes even giving the message that yes, this makes us happy. But if we stop, if we look within, we realise, if we're honest, that actually no, it's not satisfying, that there's a annoying emptiness, an unsatisfied looking for something more than just this, just this producing and consuming, just this running after this and away from that. And that we, we start to see that in fact seeking happiness, seeking our satisfaction in somehow organising the world to be as we wish it to be is actually a hopeless task. That there's so much complexity, so much um, difficulty and so much that is out of our control. There's no way we will ever be able to succeed at making it the way we want it to be. And so often what happens then for us is we turn away from that materialistic, consumer-driven sort of mentality and lifestyle. And we perhaps more turn to our inner life. We turn to spiritual practice. We turn to inner work. And and in being exposed to teachings and practices, and there are many of them, sometimes we, despite that we may have felt we've made a real shift, what we actually find is the habit, the pattern and the tendency which, by which we would very often relate to the world is much the same way that we start to relate to our inner life, to what's going on within our experience, which we observe and which we work with. 
we see that we so easily start to grasp after one thing, that we start to want a certain inner experience. We want to have certain qualities of heart and mind. And we start to push away and reject other ones. We start to say that this is unacceptable and that's not okay. And I have to get rid of this and work on that. And in a rather sad way, we're merely acting out the same pattern and tendency in regard to ourselves as we were previously doing in regard to the world. We're still driven by that movement of wanting it to be a certain way, wanting to have it in our control. And it would seem that, really, if anything's going to be in our control, then surely this must be, because this is who we are, after all. At least we believe that to be so. At times. And and yet if we actually look, if we see, if we look within our experience, it's actually not any more amenable to our control than the world around us. We can't make it be in a certain way. We can't just decide, well, I think I'll have um, a couple of sort of sittings of bliss this morning and I'll just sort of enjoy them for a while and then in the afternoon I'll sort of move on to sort of deep concentration and later in the evening I'll have a bit of insight. It's really not like that. In fact, probably none of you made the decision this morning that, um, well, I think I'll sit down and uh, I'd really like to have a mind that's distracted and going here, there and everywhere and when it's not, it's falling asleep. (laughs) And yet, so often that's what's happening. We realise, and it's perhaps the first and one of the most important lessons of meditation practice, and one we get to learn again and again and again. We say, okay, I'll be still, I'll watch my breath. And that's not what happens. That's speaking to us. That reality, we might think it's a problem, we might think, oh, my meditation's gone horribly wrong, I barely even notice one breath in the whole sitting. But just the very fact that that's going on tells us something. It tells us something about what we call our mind, that it doesn't do what we say it should, that it's not something we can point to and say, okay, do that, do this. It doesn't act that way. That it's not something we can make be in a certain way. And that we can spend a lot of time cultivating qualities of heart and mind. And there's a real value to it and a real power to it. And yet, even when we do cultivate and establish wonderful qualities, at times, if we don't, if we don't keep working with them, often they disappear, they dissolve, they, they don't maintain their strength. And again, I remember when I was traveling in, in Asia years ago, and I was perhaps then engaged in something of a spiritual journey, though I wouldn't really have conceived of it in those terms. Um, and one of the things I thought I would do was do all the things that absolutely terrified me so that the fear of them would go away. And it's not an uncommon approach to spiritual practice. You know, If I'm scared of going somewhere where I've got no way of taking care of myself or I can't speak the language and I don't know how to even get a meal or shelter, that's really quite scary and I'll have no friends to talk to, so I'll do it and see what happens. And um, there's some value in such practice and some rather clear limitations, which I don't know if I need to go into right now. I mean, obviously one might be quite scared of jumping in front of a large truck as it came down the road, but it's not a particularly good idea to work out one's fear by actually doing that. But anyway, in this situation, I actually did it. It was amazing. I, I did a lot of things in my travels that were the things that seemed most frightening to me, and the fear went away. Eventually, I wasn't afraid of them anymore. And it's like, oh wow, great, how wonderful. It's like, I've conquered this, it's over. 
And I was sort of really happy for that. It seemed like I'd really achieved something. And then I remember after I spent two or three months staying in one place, actually with um, my grandmother, who's uh, Indian. And uh, at the end of that time, I was, I was ready to move on. I suddenly realised when I thought about going into these situations again, that I was afraid again. And it actually come back, this fear. And I realised that sometimes that the process of of making our inner experience into what we want it to be, thinking we can get rid of this, and we can experience exclusively that, that this might be a little bit false, that this might not actually be the way things are. And, and that actually the outer experiences of our life, the people, the objects, the situations with which we are in contact, that they are not in our control. We may have seen this already, we may still not quite believe it. But even more shocking, in a way, even more stark, and yet even more important to realize, is that the thoughts and the feelings, the emotions and the sensations that run through our body and mind equally are not within our control. Equally, we cannot make them be in a certain way. Although, of course, by certain practices, certain ways of being and living, we can strengthen qualities, we can free ourselves from others. But we're not in control. We can't make it be in a certain way. But there's still this attempt to do so that we experience. That although it's hopeless, that there's really no satisfaction to be found in these experiences, in hanging our hat or hanging our happiness upon making it be the way I want, somehow we seem to keep doing it. We find ourselves again and again caught in that process. And there's a lovely story um, about Mullah Nasruddin, a sort of ancient Sufi teaching figure who's both a, um, a mystic, a wise man, and sometimes a fool, though one suspects that he is foolish in order to wake us up to our own foolishness. But once Nasruddin was um, found by his friends with a large bag of red chilies, and he was picking the chilies out of the bag and eating them. And every time he did so, his eyes would be streaming, his nose was running, his face was red and flushed, he was dripping with sweat, and he'd eat it, and he's obviously suffering. And then he'd put, finish that one, he'd reach and pick up another one and eat it. And his friend said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And Nazaruddin replied, I'm eating chilies. And they said, we can see that, Mullah, but why do you keep eating them? They seem to be causing you so much pain. They're really hot, they're burning. And the Mullah said, yes, but I keep hoping I'll find a sweet one. <laughs> and again, we might reflect on ourselves and the way we live our lives. That so many times we, we reach for what we thought was the answer, the solution, the sweet chilli. And even when they are sweet, it's just for a moment. So sometimes we do feel for a moment we have actually got what we wanted. But often we don't even have that moment. And just that whole process of grasping after, of constantly reaching for something else, for somewhere else, for some new, different or perfect experience, the perfect job, the perfect partner, the perfect house, the perfect relationship, the perfect children, whatever it might be. The perfect meditation experience. Now that sounds good, especially here at Gaia House. Whatever it is, 
that we might find ourselves reaching for. When you notice that process is going on, just see if you can stop and notice that wanting itself. Because it's in that movement of wanting that the suffering is generated. That that very desire is what is so painful, is what we wish and seek to find freedom from. And if we seek to free ourselves from it by obtaining the object of our desire, by getting it, there is a moment of relief, no doubt. And perhaps we've all had it when we finally got that lovely thing that we wanted. And whether it be that beautiful dress or that new car, and yes, there's a sense of, ah, finally I have it, and, and I really deserve it, and it's just great. And then maybe a few hours, days, weeks, if we're lucky, even months. But it doesn't take that long usually before suddenly we find we're wanting something else or it wasn't really as good as we thought. And equally here, in the meditation, we can spend sort of what seems like hours, so it may only be minutes, but certainly hours and days at times, wishing that our mind would be quiet, wishing that our body wouldn't ache. And then, when we finally come to that place where the mind is quiet, the body is peaceful, and nothing's really happening, we're bored. <laughs> we want something to happen. And we quickly get lost in some fantasy in our mind. That so often getting what we want is not the solution because the wanting keeps going. The wanting is only fueled by pursuing the object of that desire. And equally not wanting, which is really just the same thing, but in its other form, when we don't want something, when we're trying to get rid of something, so often it's really that feeling of not wanting that we're seeking to free ourselves from not the thing which we think we don't want. And so, with our practice, we're learning to be present, we're learning to be in touch with our moment-to-moment experience, not just to observe the breath. Observing the breath, being present in a very quiet and still way, is very wonderful, very powerful, in that it it allows us to, to steady, to integrate our being, to give some degree of focus to our mind, which is so used to bouncing this way and that, jumping left, right, forwards, backwards, upside down, whatever. And that when it's doing that, we really can't see what's going on very clearly at all. So there's a real value in the quietening and the steadying that, that slowly and gently comes as we do this practice. But we're not doing it for that alone. Equally concerned with in being able to be present, what we see is our reaction to our experience. We see how when a pleasant experience arises, very quickly, there's a wanting for more. The thought arising, oh, this is a nice, peaceful, calm state. What did I do to get it and how can I keep it? And then we're thinking about it and it's gone before we even know it. Or we experience something unpleasant, some painful emotion or some strong, intense sensations in our body. And the thought is, where did that come from? I don't deserve this, how can I get rid of it? And we see that movement of pushing away. Or, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's simply neutral, and we're just not interested. How many times have we just watched the breath and not really a lot of fun, it's not doing us any harm, but it's kind of hard to get excited about it, you know, just another breath, just another moment. And we so easily disconnect from 
that which is neutral, that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And yet in that disconnection we so easily become lost, lost in our wanting this, our not wanting that. And so being present invites us, gives us the possibility to see, to recognize in each moment what is occurring, that the experience that's there is both the experience as a, as a sensation, as a sound, as a thought, as a breath. And it's also got with it this quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Something in between, the two. And to see how we react to that. See how so easily we're caught up in and carried away by our reaction, our conditioned and habitual pattern of wanting the pleasant, of not wanting the unpleasant, and of being disinterested in and disconnected from that which is neutral. And so... So our our practice really asks us to let go of our fascination with what it is that's happening, with what the experience is. Although to know it clearly, to see it as clearly as possible. But to be looking more at what is the relationship we're forming with this? How are we actually meeting this moment, meeting this experience? Whether it be something external to us, the scene around us that we see or something we hear or what we feel within us sensations in our body, thoughts in the mind, emotions in the mind and body process? How do we meet them? How do we relate to them? And what serves us in that process? Are we served by carrying on that habitual grasping after that which is pleasant and pushing away that which is not? Does it actually conduce to our well-being? When we actually are present, we have a choice. We have a choice to actually follow that conditioning, if we really think this is what we want to be doing, or to say no. Actually, that doesn't make sense. Actually, it's possible just to be still in the face of that movement of wanting, of not wanting, and just connect with what is happening, and just open to what is happening. Although it's actually really difficult, it's one of the most difficult things we will ever ask ourselves to do, to be still in the face of that momentum of wanting or not wanting. But yet, difficult as it is, there's an authenticity to it, there's an integrity to it, and there's a a way in which through that we start to get a sense of of a steadiness, of an easefulness and a peace which is not dependent on whatever it is that's going on. That's much more dependent upon our capacity and our deepening and strengthening capacity to see it clearly and to just be with it. That we don't need to be driven by the power of fear and the power of desire in our lives. That we can actually feel a quality of being present that touches us very deeply, that nourishes our very being in a way that no experience can do. Because all experience is transient, even that which we really enjoy and that which we long for. It's always transient and it's always out of our control. And yet we can cultivate, we can deepen and strengthen this capacity just to be there to open to what is occurring. 
And although in some ways it's very ordinary, it's almost so ordinary that it's extraordinary, that it's incredibly special, that it's really a gift to our heart, to our mind, to our body and our spirit, to simply be present in the face of the movement of desire. We start to sense in that presence, in that steadiness, which we might only touch for moments, and yet they're important moments, they're precious moments, not because of what it was that we were being with, but because of that very capacity for us to be with it. That we start to see the possibility, the potential for happiness and satisfaction in this life, in this very moment, is actually born of understanding our experience, not of manipulating or controlling it. And that being present in an open and unreactive way is the soil in which this understanding grows, this understanding of our experience. The Buddha once said of human beings, dividing them into perhaps two broad groups, as he was rather fond of sort of lists and divisions into groups, he said that people were of really two persuasions. He spoke of those who were wise and those who were fools. And he said of them that fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. And this is really the transition that I would say defines what is a spiritual life. When we actually move from a pursuit of experience, just trying to accumulate more, to consume more, to have more, to get more, when we move away from that to actually trying to understand our experience. And I think it's important that the Buddha didn't say fools are those who seek to pursue experience and the wise are those who seek to understand it. That he phrased that very carefully. He didn't say that the wise are those who do understand experience. It's those who seek to. So one actually enters into that camp, one could say, one comes under that category of the wise through actually inclining one's life and one's mind towards seeking understanding rather than putting it from the perspective of having already got there. Because that very shift itself is an expression of great wisdom and of great understanding. And actually even in coming into a situation like this where we might find at times we are caught still in that sense of pursuing experience. But if we clear that that's not our primary intention, that we're not seeking to do that, although of course at times we find ourselves engaged in it because the habit is so strong, that if the intention is clear, is established there, that the, that the movement, the direction of our intention is towards deepening and understanding, then the wisdom that comes in this process becomes possible for us and accessible to us. And what we're really seeking, what we're really engaged with in this practice, although at times it seems so difficult and so hard, so exhausting and confusing perhaps, 
It's not just to have more difficult experiences so that sort of going back to our regular life will actually seem pleasant in comparison. It's, it's really not like that at all. It's because in this process we're actually engaged in understanding what it is that brings true happiness, what it is that brings true well-being, questioning the models that we may have been given by our culture, by our family, by our friends, that we might actually find ourselves feeding to ourselves, that parts of ourselves still believe, perhaps hold on to very deeply as the truth, and yet which we have seen and which we continue to see more deeply do not bring us happiness. That those ways of being that we actually have to step beyond. And just as the, the mouse in the story, she had to be willing to listen to the faint roaring in her ears that told her to look for something other, something more, and something perhaps beyond her experience that she was not familiar with. This is the process of our practice. Despite that others may poo-poo it or say, there's no something other than this, this is all there is to it. You might as well enjoy it, get your nose back in the dirt and look for some more nuts, acorns. We've maybe heard that voice from others, Maybe sometimes in the challenges of practice we hear that voice from ourselves and our doubt or our confusion. To acknowledge that it's there, it's part of the conditioning, and yet to listen to, to honour that which seeks for something more, which knows that our potential is greater than this. Perhaps that which got us here in the very first place, which brought us into spiritual practice, which keeps us here on the cushion when our knees are aching, when our mind is absolutely going crazy and there's just a quiet sense of what is possible for us so what we're seeking is not a happiness of pleasurable experience not a happiness of of getting rid of the unpleasant although of course that's nice but it's really a happiness that's beyond whether our experience is pleasurable or not and in that, it's a happiness which is sustaining, which, is depth, which has depth to it, and which is not dependent upon the changing and out-of-control conditions and circumstances of our life. The Buddha once said, This path is the path of happiness, which leads to the highest happiness. And the highest happiness is peace. And in this practice, in this process, opening to our experience, to our outer experience, to our inner experience, thoughts, feelings, sensations, sights, sounds, opening to the whole process of experience, being present for it all, without picking one thing or choosing another as what should be, or what is right, or what I want, but actually not differentiating on the basis of pleasure and pain, but just opening to it all. This is actually what opens us, opens the depths of our very being to that happiness, to that peace which we all seek for. May all beings look into life. May all beings be free from fear and desire. May all beings 
no true happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.